0: Podcast, a youth sports conversation focused on providing players, coaches, and parents with engaging and informative content that they can use at home and at the rink. Tune in as we chat with some of the greatest people around ice hockey and youth sports. Join the discussion on Twitter at USA Hockey Coach. Now, let's drop that puck. All right, everyone, welcome back to the USA Hockey podcast. My name is Zachary Nowak. And today we are talking small area games and how we can use them to improve our practice and increase increase transfer of training. So uh, today our guest has over 20 years in coaching experience at the high school, college and international levels, uh, but most importantly, currently serves as the director of player development for USA Hockey. So. I am very, very excited to welcome on a good friend, uh, Roger Grillo. So, Roger, welcome on.
1: Thank you, Zach. It's uh, great being here. I've heard a lot of good things about this, so excited to be a part of it.
0: Sweet. As as long as it's good things, I'm happy. So it's all good. Um, yeah. So before we do start uh, talking smaller area games, I I absolutely need to hear the Roger Grillo youth sport experience till now because I know that just kind of doing some background research on you, you've had quite a Quite an accomplished career as a player, and then um, even more so probably as a coach. So I'd love to hear uh, from Roger Grillo, young till now.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a long story, uh, a winding road. Um, uh, it, it's interesting because um, I was born in Minnesota, but but actually uh, early on grew up um, in in Indiana for probably my you know, from about the age of about uh, two to about uh, seven or eight. And so my first youth's uh, experience was really basketball. Um, my dad worked a little bit at uh, uh, Notre Dame in, in the computer uh, science lab and then at Purdue University. So it was kind of in a, uh, you know, a collegiate atmosphere, uh, being on campus. I can remember the first time skating um, would have been on a tennis court in in South Bend, Indiana. And then I can remember going public skating at an outdoor rink on Purdue University. But I didn't really have a lot of hockey. Um, I remember watching hockey with my dad. He obviously came from a hockey family in northern Minnesota. Uh, so there was there was a little bit of that in, in the family. Um, and then moved from Minnesota to Chicago, Illinois. And that's where I got my first taste of of some organized hockey so that would have been with Downers Grove organization um I, I believe the same organization as the the Granado family um but uh happened to have a next-door neighbor who was from Minnesota whose family was big into hockey and that kind of dragged me into the sport um but in, in reality in, in in Chicago at the time baseball was a big deal so that was like my my major went from basketball to baseball To a little bit of hockey, then we moved to Wisconsin, and that's where I really got my first taste that in sixth grade was probably my really my first youth hockey organization. So I really didn't play hockey until later on, you know, in relation to what's going on today in today's world. Um, but played everything. Played a lot of basketball, played a lot of baseball, um, played, you know, football. Uh, did did pretty much every sport. Uh, soccer wasn't a big deal back then, um, but certainly played it in the in the street. But the, really, the culture was 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 more. Um, I, I, my greatest memories of, of playing any type of sport was in the cul-de-sac or in the uh, empty lot, um, and we would just make up games, and it was just uh, it was great, 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 great times. Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of competition, and a lot of different age groups. Um, older kids, younger kids, um, you know. I, I think that's a missing piece of our culture, and 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 something that I think that that if we can bring that back in some aspect, even within the the indoor structured uh, culture we have now, that 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 unbridled ability to be creative and and compete and kind of set your own rules and and be your own leaders and and control. What you what you want, um, I think would be a, a a big. It's a missing piece for a lot of our our kids today, and I think it's something that we as the adults got to bring back in. But then moved back to Minnesota in in eighth grade, and that's where really hockey for me took off uh, big time. Um, and was really fortunate to live in a a town that that had a lot of really good hockey people in it, um, and, and a lot of people uh, that that guided me and helped me through my journey. Um, uh, and then, you know, got, got better and better and better and better to the point where, you know, got a scholarship to play at the University of Maine and came out East and kind of been an Easterner ever since. So, um, and, and, and I always knew, always knew that I wanted to be my, my heroes growing up were my, my teachers and coaches. Um, I was fortunate enough. My high school coaching staff was a gentleman by the name of Larry Hendrickson, who recently passed away, who was a legend in Minnesota. Um, and my assistant coach was John Harrington from the AD Olympic team and a gentleman by the name of Mark Desenzo, who was a really good collegiate player at uh, Michigan State and then coached high school hockey in Minnesota for for years. Um, and uh, uh, so I had some people around me that were really special and and were kind of cutting edge in terms of um, – the stuff that we're talking about right now with the American development model, I kind of grew up in it. People really didn't know what it was. It was just people with kind of some level-headed shoulders um, that understood fun player development um, and how to not overcoach and let players kind of be who they want to be. So I was fortunate. I was really fortunate. My culture and environment, I think created my passion for the love for the game um i don't think it was anything that was forced upon me my parents were not overzealous or right on top of me or any of that kind of stuff they 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 supported they came to the games they were into it but um <laughs> they, it was it was the perfect setup they 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 did it the right way
0: well i love it it's actually funny we just had Stuart armstrong on the podcast a, a few weeks ago and um from when this one will go live but uh he talked about the same thing about how important him essentially playing in the cul-de-sac, uh, playing with friends, creating their own games. He said that they would play, um, cricket in, uh, he's from England so that, you know, they would play cricket. We don't often play as much cricket in the States, but, um, they would play cricket and each person's driveway would have a different sort of, uh, environment to it. And they all had their own essentially stadium names and, Um, it was just really cool to, to listen to that and then hearing that from you and, and how much it's now, I I would assume it has inspired you, um, to kind of dive really deep into being creative in the way that we design practices and, and giving some, the kids a little bit of that ownership and maybe taking away some, sometimes we're overly structured. So, um, which we'll get into a lot of that stuff, but it's really cool to hear that from you and kind of having a similar background and, um. Him having kind of similar ideals to you hearing already. So, um, but then, so then you got into coaching. Um, and I'd imagine that you, over the m- many years that you were coaching, I think you're coaching at Vermont and then, you know, at Brown for quite a long time. Uh, I would imagine that over your coaching career till now, that lots of things had changed in terms of the way that you view player development. So, can you walk me through how player development has maybe changed for you and um you know how to how do coaches really maximize that
1: yeah i think what really changed for me was like i said I my, my dream was to be a high school coach and teacher and i and i i got that i, I, I graduating from high school like high school uh graduating from college uh i got a teaching and coaching job in yarmouth maine and um really really enjoyed it and uh um uh, you know, had some fun with it. And, and I really enjoyed the hockey side of it. Uh, the teaching side had its challenges. Um, and, and I was really into the, the, the hockey side and, and in the summers when I was playing at Maine, I would stay out East and, and I would work a, a hockey camp called Bowden hockey school, which at the time was the biggest on the East coast was like the biggest hockey camp in the area. And it was all college coaches. Um, and I, I kind of became like the, I kind of ran the camp for, at that time the head coach at at uh, Bowdoin College was Terry Mahar, and I did that for probably six, seven, eight years, and became really good, close contacts with some of the great college coaches in in the in the Northeast, and and one particular gentleman, Bill Beanie, um, who's a legendary coach at Middlebury College, won eight national championships. Kind of took me under his wing and 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 helped me get my first coaching job at Norwich University, which was actually <laughs> his arch rival, um, but was able to get into college coaching through the connections I'd made in the in the summer, um, and then jumped from Norwich to the University of Vermont to Brown and then to USA Hockey. But um, those experiences in the summer and being around such great, great, legendary coaches. Um, Really kind of shaped me. and and Billy, in particular, because Billy, uh, his mentor was a gentleman by the name of Charlie Holt, who was a longtime head coach at at uh, UNH. And Charlie was kind of known for kind of thinking outside the box and and doing things that other coaches wouldn't do. Um, from a, a a system standpoint, from a teaching standpoint, from how you run practice. And then Billy kind of took what he learned from Charlie and kind of really expanded upon it. And, and Billy was, was kind of like the godfather of small area games in, in the U.S. Um, and so being around Billy and talking to Billy and, and constantly having that ability to pick up the phone and have a conversation with him about, you know, player development and running practice and how you coach and all that really kind of structured my way of thinking. Um, and then I think I've taken some of the stuff that Billy taught me and have kind of, you know, evolved it or changed it or, or moved some things in some different areas, but in still in constant communication with Billy. And he's still, to me, one of the greatest ice hockey coaches in the world's ever had. Um, um and, uh, I think if you talk to people on the inner circle, particularly in the college world, they would, they would put him at the top of, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of guys who made people kind of think about how you run practice um and so to me i was again super fortunate to be around really good um hockey people Uh, i've I've been very fortunate about that uh over my career well and, and
0: you and bill did you guys were on uh the webinar one of the webinar series together over COVID. and i personally i remember i was i watched almost all of them um and his was unbelievable like you could tell that he was ahead of his time oh yeah uh, and obviously a, a ton of success that came that came with that but yeah yeah his his stuff was really really good and i i took a lot away from that webinar for my own personal coaching
1: no he's he's he was definitely ahead of his time he still kind of is and um uh you know it's 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 it, it, if you believe in it and, and you buy into it and you actually do it, it, it's it's amazing how well it works. It's just a truly hard, it's a leap of faith and you have to give up some control. And that's some of the hardest, that's one of the hardest aspects of, of being a modern coach is, is kind of giving up control and giving some ownership back to the players. Um, And it kind of goes back to what I said about the unstructured play in the, on the sandlot and in the, in the, you know, on the pond or at the local rink or in the driveway, it's 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 really you know there's a structure there. There's some things that that the kids pick up from the adults, but then letting them kind of run their deal. Um, to me, that's that's pure player development. I think where we get in trouble when we talk about player development. I think a lot of people talk about it. I think it's a huge buzzword. I think automatically everybody's mind goes to. You know how fast we can make a kid, how much better we can make their hands, how much uh, you know harder we can make them shoot the puck. The physical aspect of player development, and it's overwhelming the amount of stuff that's out there on that. I mean, the drills, the the skills coaches, the the videos, the all that stuff. I mean, there's a there's a plethora of information, but for me, that's the easy part. That's the low hanging fruit. The harder part is the the mental aspect of player development and the emotional aspect of player development. And I think those two things, to me, the the, the players that, that I've seen that have moved on and have success and the players that I watch and and are excited about in any sport are the ones that, that perhaps physically aren't as gifted as others, but are playing chess when others are playing checkers. And their ability to problem solve and read the game and and break things down and then apply it. Um, to me that's that's specialness and to me that can be coached. Um, and not so much coached because I think we get in trouble if we think we're going to teach somebody that. I think it's it's the ability to create that culture environment where the activity or the experience of the activity in our training and in our culture is the teacher not necessarily the coach being a teacher. So to me, player development, it's it's a three-headed monster. But right now, it's so overwhelmingly physical that we really do a disservice, I think, to the athletes when it comes to making decisions and when it comes to dealing with adversity and accountability and what it means to be a good teammate and all that little other stuff that really goes a long ways.
0: Yeah. You talk about giving up control. Um, it's something that's really interesting. And I would imagine to your point, like it's probably pretty tough, especially if you've been, you know, coached a certain way, or you've always kind of coached a a certain way and giving up control. And you talked about, um, Bill Beanie and Charlie Holt kind of being different in the way that they run their systems, even not just their practices, but their systems were, did their systems follow similar ideas as that, that, Sometimes they had to give up a little bit of control within their structure. How how was that a little bit different than?
1: Well, the control was different, right? It wasn't. I mean, Billy Billy coached with um with three backs and two ups. You know, it was the opposite of how teams are run now. And three forwards and two D. He basically had three D and two forwards because he felt like you could possess. He he was way ahead of the curve when it came to possessing the puck. And he felt if the three people playing out back could could had chemistry and played with the same three, he could interchange two ups or forwards into the three. And the three would be more cohesive when it came to defending, uh, you know, retrieving, winning possession, and then transitioning. He felt like that was, and it's, and it, if you really think about it, it makes complete sense. Um, but it's so unorthodox, and it's so different. And I think what's happened in sport is it's copycat, right? Like somebody gets hot, somebody does something well, or has some success, and everybody's looking to see what they do. Then they copy that. And there's not a lot of people out there that are trying to, you know, think about or 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 do something different because it's it's harder to sell.
0: That's really interesting. And I know he alluded to it a little bit within his webinar, which um, we can link that uh, in the show notes for it, but because uh, it is really good. But um, so yeah, so then you talk about control, not just obviously in those systems too, but in practice design. And now you talk about the environment being the teacher. Can you explain that a little bit more? And like, if I'm just hearing that for the first time as a coach, like, what does that mean? And how can I create that within my practices
1: yeah for me the the what i mean by that is that that and 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 the control isn't so much the systems play because you in, in any sport you need some structure right there, there's structure and there's there's patterns and there's routes to our game and and there's certain things that are going to allow your team to have success um but in, in particularly in practice the ability to to step back and embrace failure and almost force failure and let the kids kind of figure out the answers, solve the problems on their own, we might guide them a little bit. We might steer them a little bit, but we're in such, so impatient in such a hurry. I mean, if I could go back and change one thing about the young myself as a coach, it would have been, I've been way more patient. And it's so hard to do because you're judged by wins and losses, especially as you move up the ladder. And not only are you judged by wins and losses from people outside, whether it's parents or administrators or your team, but the inner conflict you have as a coach, especially if you're a competitive person, which most most of us are, that inner conflict of if I do this, can I get a little bit more win? But what does it take away from the experience and the player development? It's a constant tug of war. But when I say give up control, it's really to 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 have the ability to step back, create an environment that forces um, certain things to happen, but allow the athletes to kind of find their way through the through the woods, you know, to solve the problem and come up with the answers, so that they're not always leaning on us um, and waiting for us to do it for them. Because in reality, when when you get to game day like you, you're in my in my opinion especially as athletes get older your job on game day is to manage and it's not just them it's not to manage the 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 game it's to manage your athletes and 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 read their their emotional state their their energy state their 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 uh, ability to to comprehend what's what's going on on the ice and and to be there as a facilitator, not necessarily a, a dictator, um, and I think it's 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 a hard thing to do because our ego is getting away. But I think it's absolutely critical if you if you're not just going to talk about player development, if you're actually going to have it happen, and that's that's where I think we're in two different worlds for a lot of people. Is they say all the right stuff, but can they actually do it consistently? Because it's really hard to do.
0: Yeah, and so you, you said something interesting there. You, you talked about maybe stepping back sometimes, it, but you said create uh, an environment for, to encourage certain things to happen. And so how do, you, how do you do that? If I'm a coach and I want my players to do a certain thing, um, how do I create practice activities that encourage
1: those things? Well, I think the most important thing and the hardest thing to do today with the modern athlete is just accountability, right? I think in my era when I was playing, the accountability was you're going to get yelled at, you're going to get benched, you're going to get uh, skated, right? There's going to be some type of punishment because you're not working hard enough or you're not, you know, uh, doing things correctly. Um, and I think in today's world that that, that really gets and flies in the face of player development. Doesn't mean that there's aren't situations as the kids get older where, where there is some of that type of accountability. But I think it's got to be a very, very small, small piece. Because um, I think if you coach through fear and you coach that way, you're going to get in the way of player development, especially that emotional player development, right? You're going to be your own worst enemy as a coach. And so for me, what I try to set up when I run practices now with with kids is – if you're if you're if I have a certain expectation or I have a certain desired outcome in a in a small area game or in a drill, and if the kids aren't executing it or or they're not following the rules, I just simply take the puck away from them. I just my two favorite words is when it comes to accountability is new puck. And I'm gonna take the puck away from the team that's not doing things correctly. I'm gonna give it to the other team and I'm going to force those kids to now work hard defensively because, for me, everything, the beauty of ice hockey is it's never my turn to have the puck. It's not like basketball. It's not like football. It's not like most sports where the other team scores. Now it's my turn to be on offense. You, you have to earn offensive opportunities. So your effort, your decision-making, your execution, with and without the puck, is gonna determine how successful you are offensively. And so if I don't create that environment in practice, then how can I expect the athletes to perform in game? And so for me, if I'm have a desi- if i playing a, a small area game and I have a desired outcome, and I put certain constraints or, or rules into my games to force the right things to happen and they aren't following it, then who's at fault? Is it the me or the players? Because we as human beings are going to, we're going to take the path of least resistance. We're going to find the shortcut. That's what we do best. Right. But we know, and the great athletes know that there's really no shortcut to being really good. Right. But we're wired to look for shortcuts. And so my job as the coach is in a positive, productive manner, not demeaning, not yelling, not screaming, not punishing not skating is to get my players to compete have fun but do the right things and create that environment where they learn through their decisions and their problem solving and to me that's that's player development and it's player development not just on the physical side it's player development on the emotional and mental side because that's the game of ice hockey we talk a lot about game-like situations in practice but a lot of people go to game-like thinking you know, positional play, and it's going to be five on five. It's going to be a, a breakout or four checks. They think about game-like is that. And to me, game-like is no, 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 no. That That's a s- s- small piece of it. Game-like to me is the players control the game. You're not out there with a microphone or, or speakers in their helmet. You're not deciding everything they're going to do. You're not telling them how to do it, when to do it, where to do it. You got to create that same environment where they have to solve those problems to be successful in practice over and over and over again. And so to have the confidence to step back and make and and understand that it's going to be ugly, that it's going to be disastrous and look brutal because anything at the beginning isn't perfect. It's like a kid learning how to play the trumpet. Like for the first year, it's brutal. You know, it sounds awful. But that's the process. And most kids don't pick up a trumpet and sound like Louis Armstrong out of the gate. It just doesn't happen. So, you know, to understand that that's what sports should look like when it comes to player development is is to me that that's the big difference. Because, again, a lot of people say the right stuff, but can they actually deliver the right stuff?
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that comparison. Um, because I, I think there's not a lot of people that would be able to, uh, you know, withstand a full year of a brand new uh, trumpet player or anything no. like that. And you got to have the patience, you got to be able to sit back and kind of let them figure some things out. And um, yeah, develop. So that's, that's great. I love, I uh, love hearing that. Because I think even time for, for myself, um, when I first got into coaching, I wanted to jump in right away. I saw something. Happen, and I just wanted to be all over the. Hey, I I got the solution for you. Here it is. Like, look at me. I'm great. And it's, you know, it, there is a level of the. Um, you, you're doing it with the intentions to help your players, but oftentimes long term, it may not be the most beneficial way. Um, to help to help that player, you know, down the road. So I I like that. That's really good, and I love that comparison. So. So as a coach, you talked about, um, you know, kind of having some, some consequences to certain actions. Can you give me an example of, I know you said kind of take the puck away and give it to the other team, maybe blow the whistle up new puck, new puck. Here you go. Giving it to Navy. Can you talk about like, what would be some things that you would have focused on if, you know, as a youth coach or even as a college coach, um, and how you would have, um, Done that within your practices.
1: Well, I think you you got to have your non-negotiables, right? You got to have certain things that you 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 want from your players, especially as they get older. And for example, if you if if you want your if you want your your players to be disciplined and and, and not take penalties, well, then you can't let them take penalties in practice. Like I see it all the time. I see these coaches that that are like my kids are so undisciplined in games, and you go watch practice, and <laughs> hey, guess what? Surprise, surprise! They're doing the same thing in practice. You just letting them do it. So is it the players or is it the coach? It's the coach. The coach is the fault. You know, it's it's like it's like training a dog a little bit. Like if you if if you want the dog to sit, you can't give him the treat if it doesn't sit. And you got to be patient. Right? You got to work your way through it. And I'm not going to teach the dog to sit. I'm going to force it through the environment and culture I, I created. And to me the treat in our sport is the offensive side of the game. It's the puck. And, and so why would we ever do drills where it's somebody's turn? Why would I ever ever bail out a kid who's not working hard off the puck defensively to get a chance to play offensively? It's not going to translate. People say, well, we struggle with breakouts in, 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 the, in the game. Well, how do you run your breakouts in practice? Does it, is it somebody's turn? Is there conflict? Is there decision-making? Is it, is it really game-like? I mean, your are most coaches, like I said before, is game like means oh, we're going to have guys go to spots and we're going to dump a puck in and we're going to break out. But that's to me is not a breakout, right? To me, the breakout is possession, support, transition. And that can look a thousand different ways, but I've got to force that to happen. And I got to allow enough time in, in my drills and games for rewarding. That effort, that good decision, that good execution with an offensive opportunity, right? I've got to allow things to play through so I do force transition so that I do get kids to understand that 98% of the game is played without the puck. All those decisions, all that hard work, all that stuff I do off the puck is going to determine my success as a hockey player. But are we putting them in those situations? Or is 98% of our practice all focused on what players do with the puck? So how do we start drills? How do we finish drills? How do we incorporate the individual techniques of skating, passing, shooting, stick handling? What does that look like in practice? And to me, in today's world, where I was talking to a, a, a buddy of mine here in Boston, former NHL player who has been slaving his, his fanny off with his backyard rink, and he said his kids got six days of skating, right? And he's working it every day. He's just praying for some cold weather. And so, in a in, a, in an environment, particularly in certain parts of our country now, where that unstructured play is gone, what does my practice and training environment look like? And am I maximizing the opportunities for my athletes every time I step through the door? Or am I the coach who thinks I'm going to be able to teach and coach and tell everybody how to do it and do it well and that that's going to translate for them down the road?
0: Yeah, so you you brought up, this is really great because you talked about consequences, but then you went into rewards here too. And I love that. You said that when they do it right, they should be rewarded with whether it be a a point in the game or I love the idea because kids love they love to score, but be rewarded with an offensive opportunity like you just worked your tail off for this puck. You just did something really great. And now, you know what? Here's your chance. Go on and score, you know, because sometimes getting a point in a game, it's like, okay, that's good. But kids, they love to score, right? And the second you put that puck in the back of the net, there's nothing more rewarding than than a kid putting the puck in the back of the net and
1: getting that opportunity. Think about Allmark, the goaltender for the Bruins, right? Scores that open the net. We used to allow our goaltenders, if they made a save, to drop the puck and try to skate it up the ice and make a play. Like they they want to score too. I mean, look at all the excitement and and, and fuss about that about him scoring that goal right that tells you right there how cool scoring goals is in our sport how hard it is to do but how cool it is when you do it and so everything that we do should be with the objective to put the puck in the opponent's net and and not reverse engineer it meaning that we're going to build everything up to that because that's the that's when the game does stop and a number goes up on the board right and everybody celebrates it everybody celebrates it on the offensive side So if that's the icing on the cake if that's the if that's the, the Mount Everest in our sport, then shouldn't we build everything to get to that right and, in, and but in reality a lot of our practices are designed to stop that right which I understand but if it's designed to stop that, Then what's the next phase of transitioning it to get to that? So we got to let things kind of go. We got to let things play through, and that's why, to me, the the um, the offensive side of the game is the hardest to coach, and it's the it's it's the area where a lot of our kids struggle because we just don't give them enough time in that area.
0: Yeah, that's um. That's really interesting. I love that. And so um, you also talked about you said something really interesting is how do we how do we mix in the individual skills within our practices and you talked about how you start drills and I I saw you run a practice in UNO and you did something really interesting with with the college kids out there and how you started the activities or how you started the small area games that you guys were running. Can you kind of walk through walk through that in terms of the, the skating stuff that you had for them?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think when you, when you, again, when, you, when you're when you doing smaller area games or drills in your practice, like how often, how often does one player, if you're playing a three-on-three game, how often do six players enter the game at the same time with the same amount of rest-to-work ratio as each other? It's just a non, again, if we're going to do game-like, let's make it game-like. Let's stagger people going in. Let's have them do some skating before they get in. Let's have them do some skating after they get out. Let's let's hide some of our skating technique in these pockets in practice. But what it does, too, is it, it simulates, again, if, if I force a kid to do some type of skating technique, whether it's pivots, you know, duck walks, crossovers, power turns, stops and starts, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Agility, edge work, I can force them to do a bunch of stuff. I can send them staggered, but now the reward, who's going to get first touch of the puck? The kid that works the hardest and has the best technique. And so now, instead of me doing just focused on skating, there's a purpose to the skate, and there's a reward from the skate. And the reward, again, is the offensive opportunity. It's the first touch which is such a big deal. Like I uh, so many coaches, they, they complain about their power play, and and then, you know, you watch their power play, and they're one and done. Like they, they can't get the puck back. Like they just can't get it back. Well, do you start your power play with the kids getting the puck, or why don't you start your power play with them having to win the puck back? Right? Because it starts with possession. Everything in our game offensively starts with winning the puck. So you got to win the puck first. So why don't we start with some of those types of concepts where especially our best players are forced to learn how to win the puck and they don't just get to start with the puck. So now we're forcing our more gifted offensive players, forcing them to play defense off the puck and win it back so that they can get to their strength. And that's their offensive part of the game compared to the other kids. And vice versa. If I have a kid who's weaker offensively, Maybe I do give them the puck or I cheat them. So they do get the touch, right? And they do build their confidence. And they're not having to go up against somebody who's faster, stronger, more technically sound, right? So there's a lot of ways to do that. And I think really good coaches, the art of coaching is understanding where your players are at emotionally, mentally, and physically and, and where what, what they do well, what they don't do well and handicapping what they do well in practice. Don't let kids work on what they already do well in, in practice. That's your job as a coach is to force them to get help them get better. In the game, they'll go to their strength. They'll go to their strength, whether it's their skating, their, their hands, their physicality, whatever it is. They'll go to their strength in the game. My job in practice is to handicap what they already do well and force them to work on what they don't do well.
0: So let's say, for example, I definitely wasn't the fastest, but let's pretend I was the fastest. I'm on your team. You're my coach. Um, and you want to find a way to kind of challenge me. I'm just I, I'm faster than every kid out there. And um, I win all the puck races just simply because of that. What would you do to make me either work a little bit harder or work on a different skill set? I can no you, longer I'm win speed anymore.
1: I'm not, not going to let you play in open space. I'm going to take away your space. I'm not going to let you use your feet to get better. I'm going to force you to use your head and your hands. Because that that's a very common, a lot of our better young players are better because they're, they can skate. Like they're just more, they adapted to skating quicker. And I've seen kids that come from non-hockey families who strap on a pair of skates and they just have this natural ability that they have just great balance. They have great coordination at a young age. And so that definitely benefits them. But as a coach, I can't let your feet determine that that's what's going to make you a great player. I got to make sure that I take away your space. I might make you go one against two. Right? I might give more space to the weaker skaters and give less space to the better skaters. I might send you in late. I might make you I might make you always get second touch. Okay? I might I might cheat the puck to somebody else. There's so many different ways you can do it and and what what happens is it, it, you also then attack the emotional aspect of being a good hockey player because it's not easy. I, I know it's practice. There's no scoreboard. There's no ref. There's no mom and dads. You know, count keeping and score and you know, gonna dissect your game. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna emotionally gonna sh- stress you a little bit because I'm not gonna make it easy on you because I'm not gonna let you go to what you already do well. You know, if I have a young kid, a basketball player, who's really good with their right hand, they can go to the right, they can drive to the right, they can dribble with their right hand, they can't dribble with their left. Or well, if I'm going to play a, a drill and practice, I'm saying you can't use your right hand. You can't go that way. You're going to have to go the other way. Now, I know on Saturday in the game, they're going to go to the right most of the time, but I've got to develop the other side of this, the, 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 the game. And it's the same thing in hockey. Whether it's your feet, your hands, your head, your physicality, Right, um, uh, you know, some kids compete harder than others. Some kids see the game better than others, and usually, the kids that that see the game better, it's usually because they weren't the fastest skater. Like I always say to my friends who have kids that play, I almost hope your kid isn't naturally gifted skater, because I know that their coaches are going to have a hard time handicapping that, and then. God forbid when they're 14, 15, they want to be a really good player and everybody else can skate now and they can't think and they can't problem solve and they've never they've never not played with the puck because they've always had it because they were faster. Then it's a disaster and it's almost too late. It's never too late, but it's really hard. It's a lot harder at that stage. I tell them it's, it's, it's almost like learning the language, like you drop a two-year-old kid, three-year-old kid over in France, they're going to pick up French pretty quick you drop a 14 15 year old kid over in France they're going to struggle right It's just it's harder because we have so many other habits and things that are we've developed over the years there's other stuff that's in the way and and so don't in our sport don't let the great skaters dominate and that's why the cross ice conversation in the game model and in practice and the small area stuff is so critical because the more conflict the more traffic the smaller the space, the quicker the decision, the more difficult it is emotionally and mentally for kids, but that's player development.
0: Yeah, that's really, really good, and I love how you talked about, um, you know, the kids that are physically um, developed sooner, they they get away with some stuff, and you you know, how many guys do you see at the at the highest levels now that they were, they developed later in in life. And they were smaller when they were younger and they weren't the best player on their team. And, you know, they were forced to find different ways. And then all of a sudden they finally, they grow a little bit more and they develop a little bit later, but they have all the traits of that small kid who was forced to be really good with their hands, forced to be really good with their vision. But now they've caught up physically size wise speed wise and now it's like man i got a lot more going for me so so how do we not leave those those early developing kids behind too that hey
1: we need to challenge this kid as well that's the biggest mistake that's made right is is the kid that that that's really good young how he's handled is is way is way more dangerous than the kid who's not very good and how they're handled and i see it time and time again i mean you know little johnny who's superstar at six seven eight and you can't find him at 14 15 he's out of the sport because he just he dominated and now he can't and he can't deal with it right and and then you see the the so-called late bloomer who's passionate and had to struggle but struggled and figured some things out and and developed a deeper more in uh entailed toolbox of abilities that are going to serve them well down the road because the physical part of the game in terms of the technique, especially skating to me, you can get better at that if you're passionate. And if you have the perfect storm, you have a, you know, you have a, uh, you know, you have a, a Jack Hughes kid who can skate, but who can think and who can problem solve and who can, got good hands like you have the the perfect storm right or or the lebron jameses of the world who are physically you know freaks and but can dissect the game and see the game and and, you know most people it's there's something missing there's some form of weakness in their in their in their link and usually what i've seen with with really smart athletes it's either they're smaller or they weren't as fast they weren't as dominant you know like a tom brady you know or, you know didn't have the greatest feet couldn't elude pressure so had to figure out how to elude pressure with his head with with reading the, the defense and reading the, the routes and and that ability and then his arm arm ability you know so sometimes young physically gifted kids if not handled properly can really struggle as they get older
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, And this is a lot, a lot here. And uh, I love kind of where you're taking the idea of player development and how we can maximize it for each individual player. So you're thinking about player development here still. What do you think or what do you see is the future of player development? Like maybe we're doing some pretty good stuff now, but what do you think is kind of the future for us? Well, I think it's it's it's
1: it's giving ownership to the athlete. It's, 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 it's coaching through questioning. It's, um. you know, it's, it's really, it's really us as, as coaches taking a little bit of, again, like I said before, a step back, understanding where we're trying to get to, but not being in such a rush, you know, we can't speed farm development. So you, you, you've you got to, there's a process that, that has to take place and it's going to be different for everybody. But I think to me that the next step is really in practice and in training and then off the ice, especially with older athletes through video, through conversation and dialogue, not, you know, not me telling, but having a discussion with an athlete on what they see and and and, and why they did something. And and then having them work through the the progression, and making sure that emotionally and mentally, they're developing at the same rate they are physically. And in fact, to me, the emotional and mental development of the kid is probably more important. It's 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 two thirds, and the physical aspect is a third. But percentage wise everybody migrates towards the physical everybody migrates because it's it's tangible you can see it it's right in front of you right it's that's the easy part um but to me that's the that's the the issue that we face in youth sport right now and so to me the, the next phase of player development is getting coaches and parents to understand that um This process takes time and there's certain boxes you got to check off, but failure, problem solving, what it means to be a good teammate, that's that's stuff that's invaluable and it's really hard.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's really good. It's not glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely not. And it's, it's not easy, even as a coach changing your changing from being the person who's, um, you know, essentially disseminating information. They're the one that's telling these players everything they need to know. And instead kind of being the question master in a sense. And, and, but being able to kind of guide them a little bit through that questioning, um, cause oftentimes when we first get into questioning, it's, Um, do you think you should have done that there? And it's like, well, I don't know. You know, it's like a yes or no question, but instead being very uh, intentional about the way that you ask questions, but also leaving them open-ended to say, Hey, what did you notice there on that last player? What did you see the defender doing as you entered the zone and being somewhat specific and, um, taking that questioning to, like you said, not just practice, but film to, you know, every single aspect of your, your, uh, your coaching and, and that environment that you're putting the players in.
1: Well, and I think too, Zach, I think, I think where we get in trouble too is we don't have to have all the answers. That's, that's unrealistic. It's unfair. Um, And that's why the conversation is critical and not the, not the, the, to me, the, the, a good teacher's best attributes is, is a great listener.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. And so uh, we're coming right up on about 45 minutes here. And this uh, conversation has been unbelievable. So uh, I'll leave you with one last question here. And it's, if you could take one thing from this conversation and encourage coaches to act upon it right now, what do you think that one
1: thing would be? Um, be the best observer you can be. Meaning that, in, particularly in practice, um, taking as much information as you can from your athletes—they're giving you information, just a lot of us don't see it. And I'm not talking just about how they perform or how they execute something, but their body language, their smiling, their engagement with their teammates, where are their eyes when you're talking to them, where where where's their is their chest up? Do they feel good about themselves? Like all the. The, your players are constantly giving you information, but I'd say a lot of coaches aren't taking it in because they're they're too busy worrying about the the activity or the practice or the game or the drill or the result, and they're not they're not they're not being to me to me the the most important aspect. And I'm I'm talking from experience. If I could go back, would be to to talk a lot less and watch a lot more. And analyze it, and then have an idea where I want to get to, and then get there patiently, um, and with a purpose.
0: Sweet, that's awesome, and uh, it ties a lot into really. That is just a summary of what we've just kind of chatted about for the last thirty. Well, and that's why the small area the
1: games sense. are so critical because that uh, that gives you the freedom to do that. Yeah.
0: I love that. So um, if people want to get in contact with you, Roger, and, and kind of learn a little bit more, maybe they have some questions after this conversation and um, they want to maybe ask you a few questions. What? Uh, how could people get in contact with
1: you? Well, you can get my cell phone number, 719-304-1884. And the email address is G at usahockey.org more than happy to talk hockey with anybody that wants to talk hockey
0: awesome well appreciate it roger appreciate you cutting out some time for uh for the podcast and i think this is going to be a really exciting listen for for a lot of people and uh appreciate you sharing that time and sharing your experience and knowledge
1: well zach thanks for doing this and i think it's uh, awesome that usa hockey's jumped on board with with this type of stuff and um, looking forward to uh, continuing to follow your progress through this this journey as well. Thanks for your time. Yeah, appreciate it, Roger. And we'll see you all in a few weeks.
0: Registration is open for the 2023 USA Hockey Level Five Coaches Symposium. The Level Five Coaching Symposium is where aspiring coaches from across the country will gather to attain the highest certification offered by USA Hockey. This year's coaching symposium is set for May 4th through the 7th, 2023 at the Seacrest Beach Hotel in Falmouth, Massachusetts. The Level 5 will offer large group and small breakout sessions, giving you the opportunity to explore and apply innovative approaches to coaching. The final list of speakers will feature some of the most accomplished coaches from across the world. We hope to see you there this spring.